America's time as a player on the stage of world history has been brief. I think understanding this fact has always made you patient with your younger cousins. Well, not always patient. I do recall that on one occasion, Sir Winston Churchill said in exasperation about one of our most distinguished diplomats, he is the only case I know of a bull who carries his china shop with him. <laughs> the bones of death, the covering clay, the sinews shrunk and dried. Reviving shake, inspiring move, breathing, awakening, spring like redeemed captives when their bonds and bars are burst. Let the slave grinding at the mill run out into the field. Let him look up into the heavens and laugh in the bright air. Let the enchained soul shut up in darkness and in sighing, whose face has never seen a smile in thirty weary years, rise and look out. His chains are loose, his dungeon doors are open. And let his wife and children return from the oppressor's scourge. They look behind at every step and believe it is a dream, singing, the sun has left his blackness and found a fresher morning. And the fair moon rejoices in the clear and cloudless night, for empire is no more. We need to talk about anger. What use is it? Does it jet propel a righteous movement? Or does it impede the progress of rational, considered action? What happens when the oppressor gets angry? How does the oppressor respond? When is anger right and when is it good? When is it chaotic and bestial? Are those aspects necessarily at odds? When is anger limited to bottled emotion, stoppered on the debate stage, lest one be tarred as unserious? And when is it appropriate to uncork that anger, drench the foundations of injustice in the oil and the bile that flows freely, and torch the motherfucker? America's kind of lost its sense of the future right now. The idea is the future's going to be the collapse of empire or the rise of the zombies or something that wipes us all out. Superman's on it forever. Superman, as far as I'm concerned, can save my life. Grim, totalitarian, police state in Britain of the unreachably far future, like 1997. Comic book artists were not happy with Warhol or Mickey or any of the pop artists because they said they took our imagery and we got paid page rate. This is the first issue to focus on a character we haven't heard from since the second one, an eternity ago if you're forced to suffer through this comic. Dr. Fate is apparently a member of the League. I mean, he's on the cover of the first issue, and he's appeared in at least several of the panels in the ensuing ones, although he's played no part whatsoever in the story so far. 
For some background, this version of Dr. Fate has been around in our world since his Golden Age of Comics debut in the 1940s, when he was part of the Justice Society of America. That's the old-ass group, with some unique members, and some members who were different and lamer versions of characters that would be revamped about 20 years later, starting, I believe, with The Flash, or maybe The Green Lantern. This group included Dr. Fate, duh, Our Man, a chemist who gets one-hour physical boosts from a miraculous medicine called Miraclo because it was the 40s and creativity was being rationed for the war effort, The Spectre, a dead cop who just won't stop being a bastard, my literal, actual nightmare, The Sandman, not the Fey Lord of Dreams from the Neil Gaiman comics, but rather a fedora and gas mask wearing vigilante with a sleeping gas gun and a sidekick named Sandy, the Al Pratt version of the Atom, whose superpower is literally that he was short but could still beat people up, which I consider a personal affront. And then we have the original Flash, Jay Garrick, who wore that actually pretty cool World War I helmet with the Hermes slash Mercury wings on it and is the saving grace of the whole team. We also have the first Green Lantern, Alan Scott. The reason this one is dumb is that instead of not being able to affect things that were colored yellow, his power ring couldn't affect things that were made of wood. It was incredibly lame, but at least he wasn't a sludgy, toxic, racist woman hater like the Green Lantern of this comic, our boy Guy Gardner. And finally, we have Hawkman, who was literally no different from his modern incarnation, which sort of makes sense if you know anything about Hawkman, but I'll let you look that one up on your own. This Dr. Fate, then, is the human archaeologist and physician, Dr. Kent Nelson, who, years prior with his father, stumbled upon the tomb of the ancient sorcerer Nabu. In a tragic accident, the release of Nabu from his slumber ended up killing Sven Nelson, leaving Kent alone with his father's body. Alone, that is, except for the spirit of Nabu, manifested in the golden helmet that is Dr. Fate's iconic fashion statement. Naboo takes pity on the young Nelson and agrees to guide him through life and through the miraculous world of magic and powerful multiversal spirituality. Probably not what Kent was hoping for when he got up that morning. I had a little disappointment today. But at least it's something. There's a lot of convoluted backstory for Dr. Fate, but the relevant bits for our purposes today are that Naboo has long been an agent for, and at this moment is a member of, a group of extra-dimensional super-beings known as the Lords of Order, who stabilize the universe against the machinations of an opposing group of magical big boys known as the Lords of Chaos. You can probably guess what they're after. Okay, let's get started. In an uncharacteristically literary and frankly decent sequence, this issue opens upon the town of Stone Ridge, Vermont, where a boxy and 80s-as-hell blue coupe has just crumpled its grill on the corner of a brick building. As a crowd rushes to the steaming gnarl of glass and metal, a man in a wide-lapelled green jacket and gray turtleneck walks disinterestedly past the commotion. He is the gray man, and he feels nothing. His emotions are gray. His world is gray. He only knows gray. He can never escape gray. Except that he can still feel hatred and anger, because I guess that makes sense. You must be mistaken. I don't know what you're talking about. 
His angry internal monologue draws the attention of Dr. Fate, who was just about to walk through the wall into his tower fortress in Salem, Massachusetts, because doors are a sucker's game. Anyway, Dr. Fate about faces and zips off to Vermont to investigate whatever it is the gray man is up to. We cut to the studio of another character we haven't heard from in a while, explosive anti-Justice League TV pundit Jack Ryder, also known as the obscure superhero The Creeper, whose usual beat is Gotham. Ryder is just finishing up his latest on-air invective against the new League, and as you can imagine, I'm 100% with him on this one. They should have been stopped. We should never have had to suffer through this. Right after the broadcast, a young intern with the absolute most disgusting haircut I've ever seen in a comic approaches Ryder with some information. And don't worry, I will be putting that haircut on the show's Instagram. I refuse to endure this alone. Turns out that something weird is happening in Vermont, and Dr. Fate of the Justice League has been spotted there. How anyone knows that Fate is part of the League is beyond me, because he hasn't done anything or made any public appearances with them. But such is the logic of this incoherent mess of a comic that makes its readers toil in the pocked fields of consistency, filling in the holes that the writers couldn't be bothered to. With Jack Ryder's pointed campaign and colorful diatribes against the League and the Gray Man's monochromatic frustration with at least one of its members, I think this is as good a time as any to dive into one of today's main philosophical questions. Is anger politically useful? The argument against anger as a rhetorical tactic has a long and consistent history. As I discovered via a 2018 essay by philosopher Amiya Srinivasan called The Aptness of Anger, there are cases for and against the utility of anger and emotion in general in debate at least as far back as the ancient Greeks. The Stoic, Seneca the Younger, attributes to anger a, quote, most inhuman quality and argues that it has a tendency to destroy its host in their expression of it. Numerous Christian theologians have proffered the virtues of, quote, meekness, as they put it. The idea of meekness, of course, veins the bedrock of anti-feminist theory. But that's ground that I won't cover just yet, because we'll be here all day. It would be an angry day, so maybe it would be appropriate. And we'd even get to explore some more works from our favorite liberal imperialist John Stuart Mill. <laughs> I'm just not ready for that yet. More recently, philosophers like Glenn Pettigrove have argued that anger represents an unhelpful departure from social norms. From Pettigrove's essay, Meekness and Moral Anger, and I'd like to interject here to point out that Pettigrove puts moral in apparent scare quotes. Quote, nearly every social role requires one to continue to interact in a productive, non-antagonistic way with other people who have transgressed against accepted norms. This seems almost unassailable at first, right? On the surface, it makes sense. But with a little interrogation, we get to watch it sweat. First, the word nearly is quite the safety net of a qualifier. So which, quote, social roles are we talking about? How do they, quote, require one to specifically act? And here we have our next clever bit of padding. Quote, continue to interact. 
which narrows the margin of discourse by excluding, I guess, outbursts, one-offs, as if these aren't politically useful or are not worth considering? And what does productive mean here? In your laboratory, sire, I have perfected the death dust. And productive for whom? The death dust. Not that there can't be answers for these last questions, but the answers do matter. And the very nature of the case-by-case -case qualification or definition of productive renders universal statements like Pettigrove's impotent. And then we have the first real kicker. By following productive with non-antagonistic, Pettigrove is necessarily implying that the two work in tandem, that productiveness requires non-antagonism and that non-antagonism begets productiveness. Obviously, this isn't merely my own interpretation. It's the thesis of his essay, summed up in one clause. What makes this so galling to me is, of course, what punctuates this line of reasoning when Pettigrew finishes the statement with, quote, people who transgressed against accepted norms, i.e., the people one should be productively non-antagonistic toward. But what accepted norms are we talking about here? Well, this very much depends on a concept I like to bring up a lot because it's one of the key ideological blind spots that both liberal and conservative constituencies suffer from. Power dynamics, the difference in influence parties that are at odds have over their own lives and material circumstances and the lives and material circumstances of others. Especially in the political realm, where the individual is a meaningless concept, and it is, I don't care how rich or influential one person may be, they are still part of a class, which, by definition, has its own particular sets of needs and goals to prosper that are, you'll forgive me, not non-antagonistic to other classes. But I digress. Especially in the political realm, the concept of power lies at the heart of every single encounter. For the boundaries of today's argument, let's look at just one type of power dynamic, which admittedly could spiral into many more specific ones. That of status quo versus progress. Of course, much like productive, progress can mean various things to various people, some of which are less helpful than others. Yes, the meanings and the people. So let's define it. Progress, as it would be considered from a left-wing and sometimes even a liberal perspective, means not only bettering the material conditions of the poor and the indigent, but also making a change to the system that allowed that poverty to exist in the first place, or even, as is often necessary, abolishing the system entirely and replacing it with something better. This is not only progress, this is history. The arc of the universe doesn't simply bend toward justice. People and movements bend it so. In so many cases, the dismissal of anger as unproductive or anti-progress serves to bolster an established power dynamic, or in other words, the status quo. I'm going to quote at length here from Srinivasan's essay. Quote, the proponents of the counterproductivity critique run the risk of a wrong that has something in common, in structure if not intent, with the most straightforwardly oppressive ways of speaking about anger. The misogynist dismisses a woman's anger by calling her shrill or strident. 
The racist dismisses the black person's anger by calling him a thug or an animal. These are not mere insults. These are rhetorical strategies that shift the explanatory context for the subject's anger from the space of reasons to the space of causes. The misogynist or racist explains away the woman's or black person's anger as a product of inferior character, treating the question, why is this person angry, as a request for a causal explanation rather than a justificatory one. And so the bigot says, she is only angry because she's a shrill bitch. He's only angry because he's a thug. Thus, the bigot obscures the possibility that the woman or the black person's anger is apt, end quote. Let's take a look at our favorite defender of the faith, the New York Times. In a typically America-centric and patronizing fashion, the lauded and much-accoladed writer for the Times, Anthony Lewis, wrote in 1984 about black civil rights in South Africa. Naturally, he, being a liberal among liberals, does appear to understand and care that the black South Africans were being oppressed. And he appears to take their side on this matter, although he does it with the paternal distance of sympathy versus empathy, since he couches the whole piece in how that sort of political repression couldn't possibly happen in the U.S. Because the United States of America has certainly never oppressed black people, politically or otherwise. I have the strangest feeling as though all this has happened before. This opinion piece becomes eminently relevant with one particular passage, which I'd like to read to you now. Quote, Blacks are 73% of the people of South Africa, but they have no political rights at all. Over the years, they have also been systematically deprived of the voice to protest their status as serfs. Their leaders have been jailed or killed, their organizations banned, their simplest demands labeled subversion and revolution. Yet somehow, they keep making themselves heard, end quote. Now, what could that secret sauce be? I guess we'll never know. I joke about this assumption, but for so many historical acts of rebellion, it's actually quite hard for the majority of people reading or hearing about them to truly know for a fact whether or not the oppressed were, in a word, angry. This is because the mainstream press almost never, truly 99% of the time, interviews protesters most active in the rebellions. The first go-to for outlets like The Times or The Post or CNN is, you can probably guess if you've been keeping up, the police. Do you think there are many communists in this procession? I think it's possibly made up of three, one-fourth communists and one-half no-communists. From Bull Connor to Bill Bratton, the police have always been the front line for fielding reporters' questions. In fact, in another Times article about those very uprisings in South Africa, the first person quoted was, of course, a police spokesperson. When larger corporate outlets do deign to give voice to the downtrodden, it's very rarely someone intimately involved with the protests. Usually, it's someone of the same demographic whose property was damaged or who has particular sympathies to, quote, law and order. And in the very rare instances that highly paid, several degrees removed journalists actually talk to people with the grievances, it's never a wide survey. In so very many cases, 
the journalists will find an ersatz spokesperson to interview and then give that person's name and contact info to all of their journalism friends. And then that person alone gets elevated, quite often when that's the last thing they want. As an example of all of this, let's just look at, say, one American city with a history of what the mainstream press might call racial tensions that almost never gets talked about anymore, but certainly made headlines in the past. Miami, Florida. The city has seen pretty substantial uprisings against racist oppression three times in the last 50 years. In 1968, a mass movement of black organizations held a rally meant to demonstrate frustration with the oppressive nature of the American system. The rally was explicitly for black people only. It was organized to occur on the same day as the 1968 Republican National Convention that was being held in Miami that year. NBC News continues its coverage of the 1968 Republican National Convention, brought to you by Gulf Oil. Oil, 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 oil. Tonight, I again proudly accept that nomination for President of the United States. The impetus for holding the rally on this day came from Miami's white citizens' enthusiastic response to a July tour stop of then-independent presidential candidate George Wallace, a man so blatantly toxic that even Barry fucking Goldwater refused to associate with him on the grounds that he was, quote, a racist thug. We'll learn more about Barry fucking Goldwater in our Justice League miniseries finale, but for now, just trust that that's a severe case of the pot calling the kettle black, so to speak. Although most white reporters departed without incident after being asked to leave the, again, explicitly black people only rally, one refused to do so and was forcibly ejected. At word of this violence, the Miami police immediately deployed a squad of heavily armed enforcers. <laughs> Naturally, the presence of armed racists with legal recourse to murder uh, failed to douse the flames of righteous anger at a demonstration specifically meant to protest such systemic injustices. The uprising that followed lasted several days and came as an apparent shock to Miami's white elite. However, as the black-oriented newspaper, the Miami Times, noted, the riot last week came as no surprise to us. It should not have surprised any of you either. If you had only looked around you and seen the results of social injustice and inequality, surely you would have seen the disturbances coming too. Two years after the uprising, the New York Times published a limp, sycophantic article detailing the efforts of Miami police to study where, quote, police bigotry comes from, as in bigotry that police have against black people. Of course, the study found that while it is overreactions on the parts of police officers that lead them to attack black people, it's just because they're afraid of black people. And they're afraid of black people because of the time that they spend, quote, patrolling the ghetto. Again, and this is off topic, but I'm going to say it anyway. This points to something I and other abolitionists have been saying for years now. 
Police do more harm than good. Even if we were to take this line of reasoning prima facie and accept that police are only violent toward black people because of the time they have to spend witnessing and interacting with poor black people's living conditions, then we must conclude that were we to change those living conditions, the police wouldn't A, be violent after being exposed to them, and B, not have to patrol at all, much like the relationship they already have with richer, whiter neighborhoods. But whatever, it's, it's a good example of deferring to police rather than victims. Twelve years later, in 1980, Miami was host to another uprising, this time in response to the acquittal of four police officers who murdered a black man at a traffic stop. Those four officers beat Arthur McDuffie to death, just pulled him off his motorcycle and beat him to death. Following the trial, in which it was revealed that the police department had also staged a cover-up at multiple levels to protect the officers who, again, beat a man to death for a traffic violation, each of the defendants was found not guilty of all charges by, surprise, surprise, an all-white jury. A righteous hell broke loose. In a Washington Post article from May 19, 1980, titled simply, Miami Riot Continues, the first person quoted in the story is, of course, then-Miami Police Chief Kenneth Harms. Over the course of this article, multiple police officers are interviewed, as well as a judge and some local white leaders. The closest we get to anyone with a grievance is a local black radio DJ, so as I said before, a tangential spokesman for an entire actually silenced group. In another issue of the Post, almost exactly one month later, we have a headline that reads, Miami rioters don't feel justice exists for them, poll finds. Of course, when you read the article, it turns out that the paper didn't poll the protesters. Rather, they interviewed the director of the Behavioral Sciences Research Institute in Miami, who apparently did. Third-hand information at best. In 1989, yet another incident of police murdering black people set off another angry rebellion. After white officer William Lozano shot and killed unarmed black motorcyclist Clement Lloyd, Miami burned for four days with what must have been by then a familiar and, for some, cathartic glow. Naturally, the first article I found about it, an unsigned piece in the Harvard Crimson from January 18th of that year, quotes, first and foremost, a police spokesman. This brings us, then, to an arresting intersection of anger and power, a particular reading of which, if we're not careful, could have us believing the relationship between the two to be wholly the opposite of reality. Stop lying. I will crush you like insects. To set it straight, according to a 2007 study done by Douglas M. McLeod for the University of Missouri's Journal of Dispute Resolution called News Coverage and Social Protest, How the Media's Protest Paradigm Exacerbates Social Conflict, quote, a peaceful protest that focuses on articulating issue positions is not likely to fit established news conventions for what makes a good news story. 
As such, protest groups often engage in activities that provide the kind of drama that garners media attention. This paper goes on to describe the model for the titular protest paradigm. Much like the propaganda model of Herman and Chomsky, it has five salient points. The first is that news providers will frame stories in ways that make them as dramatic as possible. Because this is sensationalist to its core, the framing for, quote, radical social protests is often communicated as riotous or criminal, but hardly ever as an even-sided, matched tactic debate, regardless of whether or not that was actually the case. See the Black Grievance Assembly opposite the GOP convention in Miami in 1968, for example, or literally any broken window in the face of systemic and repeated murder by cop. We've already covered the second aspect of the protest paradigm, the reliance on official sources and official definitions. To quote the study briefly, quote, the use of official sources gives news stories prestige, increases news production efficiency, and adheres to the rituals of objectivity. And my God, rituals of objectivity is such a great phrase. The third point in the protest paradigm is invocation of public opinion. This describes the tendency of reporters to make sweeping generalizations about how most people feel about whatever issue is being protested, usually characterizing the stated goals of the protesters as being opposed to the generally accepted reality of the mainstream, often without any kind of data to back it up. I like to call this the they say or many people think phenomenon. Number four on the list is delegitimization. This manifests as a failure of journalists to engage with the substance of the protest's goals, often leaving out key details that would help the public at large better understand what it is exactly that's being protested. This also takes the form of journalists casting movements as failures or as worthless, without ever actually communicating with them or understanding them. Coming in at number five, we have demonization. This is where the news makes it scary in order to sell stories. Journalists will hype up threatening elements of stories to prick up the ears of otherwise disengaged listeners. It's a way of personalizing a story for an audience. The journalist will highlight property damage or even physical violence, however sparse, making it seem like what might otherwise be a peaceful march is actually the breaking of the seventh seal and the resulting horde of demons sprung forth. So at this crossroads of power, this intersection of action versus representation, we are forced to admit that despite the ubiquitous mischaracterization of protest movements, those movements would not even be characterized at all were it not for the anger that necessarily explodes into commotion. How does this all relate to the comic? In what ways can we cast the enraged travails of the characters as symptomatic of a power imbalance? Well, there's a pretty decent parallel here with the gray man situation and the idea of helplessness in the face of entrenched power, i.e. the state, and as representatives, in this case, mainstream journalists. 
After Jack Ryder gets his tip off from the haircut with pimples, we zip to Vermont, where the gray man is busy pontificating at Dr. Fate, who appears to be trapped in some sort of energy field ostensibly created by the gray man. The gray man stands, Dr. Fate floats, and the two face each other down in an old 40s theater. Explicating his situation and the anger that has arisen from it, the Gray Man tells Dr. Fate about how he was once a powerful cleric at some unspecified ancient time and in some generic and vague Middle Eastern country because the inveterately white Giffen and Demetrius just love those. He describes an arcane ritual that takes him far from our mortal plane and into the realm of some nerds I mentioned earlier, the Lords of Order. His young self gazes upon them in a form no mortal is meant to witness, and this form is represented in these pages by an amorphous floating red blob, perfect for the thematic cohesion of this episode of the podcast. But a formless red blech is weirdly counterintuitive to what one would expect from the Lords of Order. For the transgression of expanding his mind and worldview, the priest who would become the Gray Man has all feeling and sensation and humanity smothered by the ethereal concept of grayness and is sentenced to eternity on a barren island. From there, he is forced to splinter himself into an army of further unfeeling other selves of his and collect mundane dream essences from recently deceased people all around the world in service to the very beings who imprisoned him. This imbalance and the Lords of Order's overreaction is also vaguely reminiscent of a similar gatekeeping behavior in the real world that is tied intimately with the communications power imbalance we've discussed already. Bear with me here. When we talk about woke culture, we are likely discussing one of two things. On the right, we are talking about, quote, disturbing new currents in popular discourse and popular vocabulary, in which a frothing mob of multi-hued, multi-gendered young people, savage, helpless individuals, simply for not signaling that they are extreme enough by using all the right pronouns or capitalizing in all the right places. What can we do? Nothing but hope for the best. Or, on the left, we are talking about a radical reapportionment of power from certain of those individuals, notably established public figures, to a mass consensus in a new, more democratic fashion, although not formally so. An example of the latter definition can be found in an open letter published in Harper's Magazine on July 7, 2020. It expressed certain trepidations against a growing, quote, censoriousness that is born of, quote, an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues in a blinding moral certainty. Basically, these people don't like being called transphobes and racists. Caught like rats in a trap. I know that sounds like a leap without context. We can safely assume that that's a correct reading by taking a look at the list of signatories. J.K. Rowling, author of Harry Potter, stands out as a notoriously vocal opponent of trans rights. Others on the list include Steven Pinker, a highly paid cheerleader for racial capitalism. So, you know, all capitalism. Whose career is backed up by tortured data and millions of dollars in funding from pro-industry think tanks. 
Bari Weiss is another one, a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times who has built a life on advocating for the brutal murder of Palestinians. On the list, we also see David Frum, whom you might remember as George W. Bush's speechwriter who helped whip millions of Americans into an Islamophobic frenzy for going on uh, two decades now. There are many more heinous examples, and almost all of these people are monsters in different ways, as we've just seen. But what those monsters all have in common is this. They're constantly being reminded of how terrible they are on Twitter. Every day. Every time they post something. And sometimes even when they don't. This is where the second definition comes in. Finally, through the magic of technology, the masses of the oppressed have a voice, and they're using it. However informal and disorganized the Twitter hordes might be, their constant barrage against people whose daily activities have been hitherto inviolable does have a positive effect. And the people who claim to be silenced by this are lashing out in the only way they know how. By appealing to an outdated sense of normalcy and decorum, or to keep it cohesive with the comic, order that only ever protected the powerful. This idea of woke, then, doesn't represent a recent mass readjustment of opinion toward injustice. Rather, it signifies that the people who have very likely always held these views now have the power to express them. To overlap our subject of power with this episode's other subject, anger, the anger of the internet masses in these cases is indeed apt, because it's an anger directed toward the guardians and beneficiaries of a system that has been historically oppressive. And the reaction of said pillars of said system shows us that it's beginning to work. This anger, and specifically the action taken because of it, is, in fact, politically useful. So, back in Stone Ridge, Vermont, the Gray Man is continuing his villainous monologuing to Dr. Fate, explaining how he's been amassing small amounts of power with each collection of dream essences from dead people over the millennia. He believes himself now to be strong enough to challenge even the Lords of Order themselves. If you'll recall a throwaway joke I made back in episode number two, the encounter with the Gray Man ends in a totally boring and disappointing way. So, at no time in this episode or the next, should you feel any inclination towards tension or excitement. Believe me, I picked the worst stories to piggyback on. Any hoozle, let's break this down for a sec. As we've seen, the Lords of Order present a neat parallel with established oppression. They imprison a man and place him in servitude for the heinous crime of attempting to learn things, which threatens the hegemony of his oppressors. In the gray man and the other selves he splits into, we have a powerful metaphor for the effectiveness of organized mass movement. Thousands of like-minded comrades working in concert toward the overthrow of an oppressive status quo. And they made him the bad guy. <laughs> this fucking comic, I swear. The gray man reveals to Dr. Fate that he will unleash his other selves to feast upon the dream essences of the living rather than just the dead, effectively turning them into sensationless husks like he is. This brings us finally, more than halfway into the issue, 
to our first sighting of the actual Justice League. Well, the main cast anyway, if we consider Dr. Fate to be a member. Over an establishing shot of the League headquarters, we see a jagged and frustration-laden speech balloon containing the words, I have had it, with two exclamation points. Following immediately, we're hurled inside the base of operations, and we find our favorite racist, Guy Gardner, the Green Lantern, shaking an accusatory finger at our favorite misogynist, Batman, and demanding that Batman relinquish command of the League to him. Batman, in his inimitable way, refuses to do so, and counters that he'd rather hand it over to Captain Marvel. The joke here is that Captain Marvel, who's now known as Shazam since DC lost its legal battle with Marvel Comics, is, in his secret identity, actually a 10-year-old boy, and certainly not fit to lead the premier superhero team on the planet into anything more complicated than a citywide cat entry rescue campaign. Of course, Batman says this in front of Captain Marvel without hesitation. I will remind you again, Captain Marvel is a 10-year-old boy in a very powerful man's body. Guy Gardner begins to make moves to fight Batman one-on-one -on -one without the use of his power ring. Captain Marvel attempts to step between the two at loggerheads, and Batman shuts him down by playing the You're Just a Kid card, because apparently Batman wants to fight the Green Lantern so badly that he'll hurt a child's feelings over it. Another man caught in a frantic race for the betterment of mankind. Side note here. I can understand the overwhelming temptation to lay Guy Gardner out. Progress. But he shouldn't have even been in the League in the first place. He does nothing but piss everyone off and lose every fight he's been in so far. Except for the one against the radicals at the UN who just wanted to feed and house people back in the first issue. He was able to beat them up easily. What follows is probably the most famous and most referenced scene in the entirety of this Justice League's time on Earth. And it's certainly a contender for most widely recognized scene in any Justice League timeline or media presence. It's been referenced in other comics. It's been referenced in cartoons. It's been esoterically referenced in things only tangentially related to comic books, if at all. And it's just not that funny. Right after Batman rebukes Captain Marvel for trying to prevent a fight among teammates, Guy Gardner rears back for a hefty left swing to somewhere on Batman, leaving himself wide open to take a solid and instantaneous right jab in the face from the caped crusader. He crumples to the floor. In the immediate group reaction, we see the Blue Beetle supporting himself on one of the computer consoles with his head as far back as he can throw it, bellowing one punch, one punch, while the other heroes look on in disapproval or dismay. Of course, Black Canary walks in right after the fracas and is spiritually devastated that she wasn't around to witness Guy's comeuppance. It would have been actually cool if Black Canary had been the one to punch Guy's lights out, but we certainly can't have our fearless writers expressing any kind of opinion now, can we? The group is interrupted from their internal squabbles by a frankly disturbing message from their monitor screen, which has taken on the shape and characteristics of a flapping human mouth. You heard that right. It's apparently a message from Dr. Fate, cluing them in to the happenings in Vermont. Thanks to some quick math done by Mr. Miracle, the League determines that they have a mere 52 hours before the entire world's population is turned into gray men. 
Listen, I know I haven't exactly given you a play-by-play -play here, but please just believe me that it wouldn't matter if I had. This is still incredibly low stakes because the entire premise that the plot is built on is very much a tell and not a show. All we have is the gray man's description of things sucking for him, but his actions haven't really shown us his suffering, just that he's pissed off. Anyway, Batman sends a very salty Captain Marvel to scout ahead, and the Blue Beetle calls Batman out for not being very polite, which is dumb as hell. It's Batman. We get inside Captain Marvel's head for an entire page, which is a rarity for this comic. He's having second thoughts about being in the league because he, again, being a 10-year-old boy, doesn't feel like he's actually ready for the kind of responsibility that league membership would place upon him. It's pretty wise for a kid. That's a splendid achievement, son. The world will be waiting to give you the finest welcome in the history of mankind. But definitely not wise enough to justify him still being in the league. As he approaches Stone Ridge, he notices Jack Ryder's news van parked in the woods. Ryder's assistant of some sort is unconscious next to it. Marvel revives him, but can't make any sense of the guy's incoherent ramblings. He swears to help and takes off with the assistant in his arms. As he flies away, we're treated to a lovely image of a graffitied McDonald's sign in the foreground. Of course, the logo is perfectly unmarred. On the next page, we're back with the rest of the League in the Beetle plane. At the helm, Blue Beetle is ranting about how he doesn't understand any of what is happening and claiming that Dr. Fate, who I don't think he's actually met, gives him the willies. In his head, Booster Gold wonders how much the Beetle plane costs, which calls us back to the joke that Beetle made in the second issue. This heralds a disgusting, get-rich-quick relationship between Booster and Beetle that will define them for the rest of the comic series, but we'll be mercifully spared because it doesn't really take shape until after this first story arc. The team lands in the woods surrounding Stone Ridge, and the telepathic Martian Manhunter alerts Batman to a presence that only the Martian Manhunter can feel, one that is strange and disturbed. It turns out to be the Creeper in his first appearance in the book. He's hanging from a tree branch and holding a can of gloss for some reason. Presumably, he graffitied the McDonald's sign. Creepy. After some inconsequential banter, the Creeper teases the group that he's seen Captain Marvel and knows where the group's mightiest moral is. In a dramatic reveal, he leads the League to a cliff overlooking the town. And in a panel that takes up the entire final page of the issue, we gaze upon a small Vermont town fully transformed to resemble a bizarre and alien world. A society completely reconstructed by collective anger. Greetings once again to the citizens of Listenerland. Thank you for joining us on another journey of the mind through space, through time, and through the depressing wonder of the world laid bare. Should any in our audience need warmth and comfort, just remember this. A better world is possible. Despair is typical of those who do not understand the causes of evil. That means we've got a leg up on despair. 
If you'd like to share stories of hope and courage in the face of great struggle, or just some comic books that you like, please share them with us on Instagram at Collective Action Comics Podcast, on Twitter at Call Comics, C-O-L-C-O-M-I-X, or via Gmail at CollectiveActionComics at gmail.com. And, as always, tune in in two weeks for the next thrilling installment of Collective Action Comics. Comics.